live for yourself. Do whatever it takes to be happy. That's the mantra that we'll hear from King Solomon today in our journey through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes on Through the Bible. I'm Steve Schwetz, welcoming you to another great study with our teacher, Dr. J. Vernon McGee. Now, as we followed along with Solomon's ancient quest to satisfy his longings with earthly pleasures, some of what we've seen or heard likely seemed familiar. So is it possible to really find happiness, true happiness and contentment and fulfillment in this world? Well, we'll see what God's Word has to say in just a minute. But first, here's a quick email from Celia, a fellow passenger on the Bible bus. I avoided God for so long and lived solely for myself, Celia tells us. I've done many things I'm not proud of. When I found your program, I was at the lowest of my lows. Thank you for teaching me how to read God's Word. As I've studied with you, I've found answers to questions I didn't even know I had. I have since given my life to the Lord and now live to please Him. What an incredible change this has made. Well, thanks so much for writing to us, Celia. We're glad to have you with us each day. And what's God doing in your life as we travel through the Bible together? What are you learning? How are you sharing His Word with others? You know, we'd love to hear your story. You can email us at BibleBus at ttb.org, or you can call and leave a message at 1-800-65-BIBLE. You can also leave a note on our Facebook page. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Word that points the way to our heart's greatest satisfaction, both here under the sun as well as into eternity. Help us to listen with open hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn now to Ecclesiastes 4 on Through the Bible with Dr. J. Vernon McGee. Now, friends, we come back to chapter 4 in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we are coming today to verse 10. We are in this section where... Solomon is making the experiment of egotism, of living for self. Egotism or egoism is excessive love of self. He puts self-interest above everything else in his life. As you know, the book of Ecclesiastes revealed that this man tried everything under the sun in order to find satisfaction. And none of these things satisfied him. And certainly egotism did not, living for self. But now he is examining that, and we've been in this section since back in verse 16 of chapter 3. But now as we come in chapter 4 to verse 10, he has made this discovery that if you attempt to just live for yourself, it doesn't mean you can go it alone, that you do need some to help you, some to stand with you. And he made the discovery that you need to team up. And he says in verse 9, where we left off last time, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. That is, you can do many things together that you could not do alone. Verse 10, for if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. That's the reason it's a good thing if you're going on a hike even, that two of you go on a hike, that one would be able to help the other in case of an accident. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth. And that is the reason that today it's well to have someone around, someone look in on you. I hear constantly here in Southern California where we have so many retired folks, of someone who lives alone, and they fall. 
break a hip, can't get to the telephone, or maybe don't have a telephone. And maybe it's a day later, two days later, that a neighbor looks in on them. It's better that two be together, because if one falls, the other can render help. And then verse 11, again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And I remember as a little boy, I always liked to sleep with my dad in wintertime, because he warmed me up, you see. It's cold, and very frankly, the house we lived in wasn't too warm to begin with, and we slept in a room that was unheated, and it made quite a difference. And there's a poem today. I thought I could put my hand on it. I'd like to give it to you, but I cannot because I can't locate it. It must be with some other papers of mine. But it says that it's best that two go together and that one can warm the other, one can help the other. And that's so important, I think, in life. Now, verse 12, And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And by the way, if two is company and three is a crowd, sometimes it's well to have the crowd, especially if someone comes against you. And you're not apt to be even held up today if there's several of you walking along. But one person is certainly the one that is picked out today. It's a revelation that in spite of the fact liberals just don't like the term law and order, we do need a little of it today. And there must be a restoration of that. This idea that we are a civilized people that we've lost our lost nature and the theologians of long ago were dead wrong, that today we've improved man and he must have liberty. And the liberty that's being exercised today is liberty to hold people up, liberty to mug them, liberty to say obscene things, liberty today to play music that no one wants to hear that has any mind at all. And as a result, Why, the folk that have liberty to express themselves, but the majority of folk don't have liberty today. They can't walk the streets. I say something's radically wrong. We've got this matter of liberty misunderstood. Liberty's not license. And after all, you have liberty to swing your fist. But where my nose begins, that's where your liberty leaves off. And we need to change these things some. And therefore... You need to have several go with you today anywhere that you go. And I've got so in conference work that my wife goes with me everywhere. I don't like to go alone. And that is something that many of us are finding today. Now, you can't be self-centered in this life, therefore, and find satisfaction in that. To say, I want to be alone may work for a while, but you get very tired of it after a while. Now we read, better as a poor and wise child than an old and foolish king who will no more be admonished. And Solomon was both of them. He was a wise child, and he was a very foolish king. Now verse 14, for out of prison he cometh to reign, whereas also he that is born in his kingdom becometh poor. And the reason that we ought to be interested in what happens in Washington and in your state capital is because it's going to affect your living. And today, that's what's making a great many people poor. 
because politicians are becoming rich, are becoming influential. And as long as people are protesting that, I'll go along with it, because the situation that has arisen in this country of ours, the corruption, is something that is wrecking business and is making a great many people poor and retired people suffer from it. These are tremendous statements that are made here, and it reveals that God is interested in you. He's interested in you as a child, as you mature, as you become an old person, and he's interested in your welfare down here. This, I think, is something that needs to be considered today. Now, we read on here, and I read now, verse 15, "...I considered all the living which walk under the sun with the second child that shall stand up in his stead." There's no end of all the people, even of all that have been before them. They also that come after shall not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and vexation of spirit. Now, there are two things here that I'd like for you to notice. He says the second child is generally the one. And Solomon was the second child. He was the second child of Bathsheba. And he was not the one that David would have chosen to have been king. And Solomon apparently had noted that, that after all, Isaac was not the first son of Abraham, and that Jacob was not the first son, that God has a way of choosing the seconds. You feel second class today. May I say you're first class with God. Then the second thing to note here is, and I can bring this down to something very practical for us today. Sometimes we have a very popular president, and then as time begins to recede from him, we find out what a second-class president he really was. When all the glamour boys get away from him, and the publicity men no longer heard, and the news meters no longer playing him up, and we begin to see that his time that he was in office did not bring any blessing to the nation, but actually it was a time of deterioration, a time when the nation began to go down. And so that's what he's talking about here. Apparently, God wants to give us all just a little consecrated gumption and how we need that today. Now Solomon tries something else as we come to chapter 5. And this is something that may interest you a great deal. He tries to find satisfaction in religion, and he does not. Now, I'm going to say several things right now that may seem startling to you, but don't reject them until you think about them just a little. Did you know that religion has damned more people in this world than anything else? Look what the pagan religions did for the peoples in the past. Look at the condition of India. It's not because the people have a lower mentality than other people have, but it's religion that has bowed them down. Look at China today. Actually, China, will you hear me very carefully, has been better under communism than it was under those pagan religions of the past. And 
I'm not advocating communism. It hasn't helped them much at all. It has made them a nation today to be reckoned with. But it's an awful dictatorship. But the important thing to note is that religion did not help it hurt. And look at the Muslim world today. Look how it's fractured and look at its condition. Look at South America. South America today is as rich in natural resources as North America is. And frankly, I think in many instances, it has a distinct advantage. But notice what happened. And look what liberalism, liberal Protestantism, and liberal Romanism has done today. May I say to you that this country, when it began to give up belief in God and respect for the Bible, and liberalism came into the pulpit, deterioration began in this nation of ours. My friend, if you've got religion, I suggest you get rid of it and exchange it for Christ. Now, I personally do not think you can call Christianity a religion. There's no ritual given, none whatsoever, with Christianity. Have you ever stopped to think that? And that's the reason that you can have all kinds of churches. You can sing the doxology if you want to. There's nothing wrong with it, and there's nothing particularly right about it either, because you're never given a form to go by. Why? Because Christianity is a person, and you either have Christ or you don't have Christ. You either trust Christ or you don't trust Christ. And religion just hasn't been very helpful to man. Now, will you listen to this? This is terrific, by the way. He says in verse 1 of chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes, Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. What he's going to say is don't put your foot in your mouth and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they consider not that they do evil. Very frankly, to go to some churches, friends, you're not only wasting your time, it's wrong. I think you're wrong to give your approval of a liberal pulpit, and I think you're wrong when you are not giving your support to a fundamental pastor that is giving out the Word of God. And I think God will hold many accounts. Be religious and go to church? <laughs> well, he says he tried that. He went up to the temple. But have as little to do with it as possible. Keep your mouth shut. Don't do anything. Just go and sit. And if you do say anything, let it be gossip or criticism. Don't, for goodness sakes, commit yourself on anything. Listen to him. Verse 2, Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty, to utter anything before God. For God's in heaven, and thou upon earth, therefore let thy words be few. Do not make any decision under the stress of emotion. Cry at the movies, but don't do it in church. Don't sign a pledge because, you know, we're fundamentalists. Just don't think you ought to promise God anything and put it in writing. But if you're going to rent an apartment or a house today, they'll make you sign for that. But that's all right. But don't commit yourself to God. In other words, make it a religion. Go through the form and have no reality whatsoever. That is the thing that Solomon tried. And you know there are a lot of unhappy people in church today. They never get involved. It's meaningless to them. They just go through a nice, sweet little ritual. 
and they try to be very pious in church and that sort of thing, and there's nothing as deadening as that today. Now, will you listen to him? Verse 3, "...for a dream cometh through the multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by the multitude of words." The thing that he's saying here is that I believe that God can speak to you anywhere. And there's a lot of things being said today in church that ought not to be said. Now, will you listen to him? Verse 4, And this is something that I think is very important. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. Don't go forward at an invitation just to make a decision publicly. There's a great deal of that going on today that's quite meaningless at a service that I conducted recently. I was criticized severely because I would not let young people come forward because it was so obvious that it would be a display if any did come. But yet there were quite a few that made decisions there that night, and I felt it was better to keep them right where they were and let them make the decision right there and then and come to Christ like that. God says, don't you make a vow and then not pay it, not to God. And how many folk have been forward in meetings, and it's meant nothing in the world at all. And then he says, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. When you do business with God, friends, it's real. You just can't go to God and promise him things and then not make good and expect or maintain a vital relationship with God. Oh, I tell you, there is a lot of pious talking today and pious promising, but it's absolutely meaningless because it's never carried out. And God says, if you're going to make a vow, carry it. And did you know God gave a law for that? When you do business with God, you better mean what you say because God's going to hold you to it. And I think today that there is many a person that's off of the mission field, many a preacher that's out of the pulpit, many a Christian that's been put on the shelf because he promised God something and he didn't mean it at all, and God just happens to hold you to what you say, my friend. This is not religion when you're dealing with God. You're not going through a ceremony. You're dealing with a person. And that person expects you to make good when you promise him anything. Now, will you notice verse 5? Better is it that thou shouldst not vow than that thou shouldst vow and not pay. Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. Neither say thou before the angel that it was an error. Wherefore should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thine hand? God will move in on you. And don't you try to say that you said it in a fit of emotion or that maybe you intended to do it and then found out you couldn't. And you know you could. Oh, my friend, we're dealing today with a living God. And a great many people don't seem to know it. And as a result, they stand out yonder on the fringe of things today. Oh, may we mean what we say to God. And may we say something to him.
Now, in a minute, we'll hear more from Dr. McGee on the subject of vows. But first, if you'd like to prepare each day for our study together, I'd invite you to read ahead in God's Word beforehand. For our next study, read Ecclesiastes 5 and 6. To ready yourself for future studies, you can download our Bible reading schedule at ttb.org. Or to get a printed copy of the bookmark by mail, you can sign up to receive our monthly newsletter. You'll love the extra content from Dr. McGee, as well as the deeper insight into Through the Bible's ministry, now in more than 250 languages around the world. You can sign up online at ttb.org or call us at 1-800-65-BIBLE. Now, the bookmark and newsletter are just a couple of the many great resources that we make available that help you to deepen your study of God's Word. You can find everything that we've got to offer over at our website, ttb.org. If you want to write, our address is Box 7100, Pasadena, California, 91109. In Canada, Box 25325, London, Ontario, N6C. 6B1. And when you're in touch, please tell us how you listen. Is it by app or online, YouTube, Alexa? How about your favorite radio station? As I've mentioned before, this little bit of information really does help us make important ministry decisions and to be good stewards of the resources that God provides through faithful friends like you. Now here again is Dr. McGee to close us. Since this matter of vows was something that was fresh in my mind, I've talked to several men about this, and they say they're a little bit alarmed at this method today of making a promise to God, for instance, that you will give him so much, and you don't have it, and you actually don't even see any chance of you getting that much. But you're going to expect now God to perform a miracle in your behalf. Now, there has been given many very thrilling stories along this line, and I'm not one to accept them wholeheartedly, but I will accept them at face value that it happened the way they say that it did. But I don't think that God has given you any assurance that if you make a promise to him that you're going to pay him so much or give him so much or do something for him, God is not one to be trifled with. We're not playing games with God. Now, the section we've been looking at today has been one that's been on my mind a long time. Don't promise God something you don't have or you can't do. God's not asking you to do that. You ask God to permit you to do it, but don't tell him you're going to give him something you don't have. That's very easy to make that kind of a promise under an emotional strain. And you've been lifted to the heights emotionally, and you've found out it's happened to others. Well, it looks like this is an easy way of coming into possession of a little cash that you didn't expect to get. And I think that it's quite deluding, and I do not think it's good, especially for young people to have this happen to them. I know on my trip to the Northwest, a young couple came to me, and they were really troubled in their mind and heart that they had promised God something, and they weren't able to make it good. And they heard me say something about the vows, and that plunged them in deeper distress, that God would hold them to it. And I asked them this. I said, why don't you go and tell the Lord what's on your heart? 
he understands you. And if you made it like that, explain to him that you were sincere when you made it, but things didn't work out like you were told they would work out. And as a result, why, just don't make a promise like that again to God. And friends, I find that there are many, even managers of radio stations that I've talked to are a little disturbed about this method of financing. May I say to you, we ought to give, and our giving ought to be on a very business-like basis with God, for we are dealing with the God of this universe, and He expects us to deal that way. Can you imagine that your grocery store or your clothing store would deal with you that way? You'd say, well, if I find a $50 bill or one comes to me for an aunt that died that I'd forgotten all about, why, I'll pay your bill. May I say to you, you don't do business in this world like that, and I don't think God wants you to. God expects us to deal with him in a very honorable and high fashion. Well, we'll be right back here again next time. Until then, may God richly bless you, my beloved. Jesus came home, home to him I home. Sin had left a crimson Today's study with Dr. J. Vernon McGee is brought to you by Through the Bible, and it's made possible by the generous prayer and financial investments from listeners like you on the Bible bus all around the world.